Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f put that in. I don't So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember. It's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, sir. Brady is out. Look, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, welcome aboard. John PLA Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Getting ready to get into a whole bunch of different stuff going on in Major League Baseball. I got I'm gonna rank the closers today from thirtieth best closer to first best closer and I'm not going to factor in relief pitchers today so that's going to be a segment I'm going to get into a little later on and just want to let you know that I'm going to be starting on what is my annual series of doing all my team previews and I you know the Las Vegas over-unders just came out this past week and that's usually the first step the first piece that kind of gets me going into the team previews and for those of you who haven't followed it and I, I appreciate all the following that I've had from it I do a, you know essentially what MLB Network does 30 teams in 30 days type of thing and I do a team preview each day getting myself as we get closer to the season we want to get it started before February ends and get it finished before the end of March and early April when the season does get started but um, I like to rank the teams coming in before the season, and you know that nobody's going to get it 100%. Nobody's probably even going to be close if you want to say what the best team in baseball is going to be and what's the worst team in baseball is going to be. And, you know, obviously ask another question. What do you think? Uh, the team that has the best record in baseball, is that the number one team or is your team that's the World Series champion the number one team? So there's a lot of different things and aspects to break down with this. But what I like to do is play around with the Las Vegas over-unders. And that's how I start my my basis of what I'm going to do. I get the over-under. I pick within my head if I think it's going to be an over or an under. And then I set that up and I start ranking the teams in divisions and what kind of records I think they're going to have. A lot of it I have an idea already. So it's not like, you know, it's not like I'm going to use Vegas over-unders and then make drastic judgments off of what I see there. But, you know, from from that, I'll, I'm going to formulate what I think are reasonable win totals. And that's how I end up getting into my, my articles. And I start usually with the 30th team, the team that I think is going to have the worst record in all Major League Baseball, work my way up. Obviously, the top 10 teams are all making the playoffs with the playoff format the way it's set up. And then after that, we, we work our way up to what I think the best teams are going to be. A little bit of progress I've made over the last two years, and this obviously year number three of doing the 30-to-1 MLB countdown, johnpiele.com. 
is I'm going to bury the hatchet with baseball prospectus and the whole uh, Baseball America and even MLB Network to some extent when they go in there and they tell you this is the way the teams are going to set up and everything is constructed based off of what happened last year. And I never really agreed with that, and I really don't. And I think the first couple of years I did this, particularly year number one, I, I reached a little more because one thing you see that happens every year is the way the teams are ranked within baseball prospectus's mind beforehand is never the way it ends up turning out. And I, I've, I've kind of went a little overboard sometimes. You remember year number one, I picked the Oakland Athletics to have the worst record in all of Major League Baseball. I mean, I looked like an absolute fool. What I've learned and what I've developed over time is that it's not out here trying to prove baseball prospectus wrong per se. But you realize that there's a lot of upside for a lot of teams and there's a lot of parity in Major League Baseball. And the best teams coming in out of March and into April are not necessarily the best teams coming out in October. And a lot of us predicted that the Boston Red Sox would have been better last year than they were the previous year under Bobby Valentine. But nobody had them winning a World Series. And now that they've won the World Series, baseball perspective is going to jump on it, maybe expect them to repeat, maybe expect them to be the favorite in the American League East. And I think you have to be a little more objective and say, all right, well, the other teams in the division, where is Tampa Bay right now? How, how well did the New York Yankees do? Did they address enough of their needs that they can make a serious run at the American League Eastern Division title? And you, know, you look at a lot of the teams, and remember the Toronto Blue Jays last year. Prior to that, the Miami Marlins. You looked at teams that ended up going out there having very, very good off seasons, and it didn't pan out. And you know, you may have predicted them to make the playoffs, like I did for each of those two teams in my first two years of the 30 to one MLB countdown on JohnPLA.com, and it does it didn't turn out that way. Does that mean that every team that has a really good off season, every team that is set up to maybe not compete until the off season, and they go out there and make a couple really big moves? Is that take them out of the equation? No, you know that's not necessarily true either. You know, factor in a team like Seattle who went out there and signed Robinson Cano. You know about their pitching they got. They may be one offensive player away from being able to contend with the other teams, but do they have enough in regards to pitching and Robinson Cano to maybe overtake a couple of the other teams in the American League West? And you really don't know until the season plays out, and that's what makes this whole thing fun, and this is why I enjoy doing this every year. And as I start within the next couple of days to get my writing on, I, I want to be a little more balanced in regards to, let's say, instead of saying anti-baseball prospectus, let me put up my own list and let me say, all right, these are going to be all the sleeper teams. These teams that Baseball Prospectus and everybody else has doing so well are not going to do so. I, I've gotten some of them right, but I've also gotten some of them wrong. And I want to be a little more objective and talk about, let's say, teams like the Philadelphia Phillies who are getting older. You know, they could go out there and win 90 games, but I think you have to l allow, you know, reason to take over and say that maybe they won't. And teams like Seattle, all right, they could be a 500 team. They could be a little bit better, but they may not be the premier team in the American League. And it's going to be interesting how this thing plays out. I have an idea. I got my division winners picked. I think I'm still kind of toying with a couple of teams that in each league that are going to go in and represent their respective leagues in a wild card playing game. And, of course, the winner of that ends up playing in a division series. But, you know, it's, it's fun to do. And, I, and obviously, I'm going to give you a preview of every team, starting with team number 30, which 
which is likely to be the Houston Astros when I put this all together. This will be the second straight year I picked the Astros. I had the Astros 29 in year number one. And like I said, I got no shame. I got no shame in anything I do, anything I say, because it's it's just my opinion. And I can't deny the fact that I felt a certain way at a certain time. I will continue to say that I thought the Oakland Athletics offseason of 2011 going into 2012 was setting themselves up for disaster. I know they brought in a lot of young players. They ended up making a Cespedes signing. But I really thought that the talent that they ended up trading away was not going to make up for what they were going to be able to bring in, and I was proven completely wrong. Is there a team like that this year that I could see falling flat on their face that nobody's really expecting right now? I don't know. I mean, I think there's some teams that I think will do pretty bad. I think there's some teams that will do pretty good. And then the rest are going to be kind of right smack in the middle. You know, a team like the Mets, a team like the Atlanta Braves, a team like even the Toronto Blue Jays. You know, you, you could go a lot of different ways with teams like that. And, you know, you pretty much could pick any team in baseball and talk about a low point or a high point. You know, the low point is obviously with everything not working out right and maybe injuries, maybe not injuries, but maybe just players that you expect to be at a certain level are not there and they don't get the job done and it doesn't work out. The best, obviously, is things clicking on all cylinders. The Boston Red Sox are a prime example of that, not just what happened in their path to the World Series and winning the whole thing, but they also had an experience on the bad side when they lost all the, all those pitchers due to injuries, the Andrew Baileys, the Joel Hanrahans, the Andrew Millers, three guys that were supposed to be really uh, the best setup of the eight, seven, eight, and nine to get to the closer and lock out the games and shut it down, uh, they were all gone by June. And the Red Sox had a retool, and you know guys like Janichi Chizawa and, of course, Koji Uehara ended up taking them to the next level with Craig Breslow, and they reformed the bullpen and overcame an obstacle of something that really could have set them back. The Red Sox could have been totally destroyed with their bullpen kind of collapsing and getting hurt the way it was, but other guys stepped up, and that was part of the reason why the Red Sox were so good, because they were unified as a team, and when somebody was down, somebody else came and picked them up. And that takes me to, obviously, what happened with the Red Sox and the success they had, and as you got into the second half of the season in the playoffs, you looked at an organization, a team, that was really clicking on all cylinders, and everything was going right. Once they overcame the obstacle of what happened with their bullpen early on in the season and the Clay Buckholtz injury, they ended up kind of having everything work out right for them. And what team will that be this year? Will it be the Boston Red Sox again? It could be, but you know that usually doesn't happen at the same team two years in a row. They obviously have a good team. You know, you know about what the Yankees did. You know about the Tampa Bay Rays and where they stand, and their pitching is going to be good every year. The question with them is, are they going to get enough offense? But as you're breaking down all these teams, you got to realize that maybe there's about four or five, maybe six teams that are kind of towards the top, whether they're predicted by baseball prospectus or myself or any, any one of you that want to go out there and do your set of predictions to win the whole thing or maybe be on the borderline and make it in. You got just a couple teams that are up there that are locks in some people's mind or most people's mind to go back there and make some noise in the postseason. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. And I think I've gone kind of the other side of it saying, 
all right, well, maybe it won't be that team. Maybe it'll be a team that we're not thinking that has a lot of building pieces and could be good in a couple of years and may go out there and be better right now. And I think when you put the 30 to 1 MLB countdown on JohnPielli.com together, it's really a balance of all of that. And you're going to get more of a balance this year. And I think my predictions, listen, you're not going to agree with them. And the one thing that I love about this every year is the discussion, the interaction, the, the, you know, the replies to my articles, the tweets at John underscore Pielli, uh, the Facebook messages and stuff like that where people say, really? You really think that team's going to be that good or that bad? I love that discussion. I love the interaction, and that's what makes this such a great uh, part of the year. And obviously, when I'm getting into previews, when I'm getting ready for the season, it means exactly that. The season's coming soon. The longest season in professional sports, 162 games, six full months of the season. And let's be honest, this this offseason, and you, you may say differently because of the weather or whatever, it's gone by pretty fast. It really has. And I always dread the winters because I know there's going to be so much time without Major League Baseball, and I know a lot of people feel the same way. But this offseason went by pretty quick. We went into free agency, and obviously free agency is still going on for the players that are still out there and haven't been signed yet. But February's ended. We're into March now. We got spring training, another month. 162-game Major League Baseball season, and I can't be any more excited. I know a lot of you feel the same way, but definitely get ready to be updated with my post and comment and interact like we always do. Uh, we're going to start out probably within the next couple days, team number 30. We're going to count our way all the way up to team number one uh, based on the over-unders and the system and the criteria that I've set beforehand. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the program. We're going to get back, and we're going to be joined by former Major League outfielder Daryl Hamilton, who is now an analyst for the MLB Network. Of course, Daryl played many years with the Milwaukee Brewers, also played with the Colorado Rockies, the New York Mets, amongst other teams, the Texas Rangers as well. Uh, a lot of great stuff we get into with Daryl Hamilton. So we're going to take a quick break. Be right back with Daryl Hamilton, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. And if you're listening on a computer, don't forget to download the iPhone and Android app, MTR Radio search and uh you know you can bring us with you wherever you want so be right back after this hey i'm sean big daddy lynch i'm joe delisanti and i'm tim o'brien and And we're your favorite tailgaters listen to our show every tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on ntr radio we'll tempt your palate with football basketball baseball hockey you name it we got it that's right we do we'll stir things up voice what's grinding our gears just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters? Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. And you're listening to MTR Radio. A flipping out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details.
Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I gave you the intro before, and we're going to get right into this interview I recorded last week with Daryl Hamilton. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League Outfielder and current analyst for the MLB Network, Daryl Hamilton. Daryl, thanks for having a couple minutes. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right, Ed, first, before we get into your playing career, talk a little bit about, you know, the work you're doing with MLB Network, you know, what, what got you into it, and, you know, it seems like it's something you enjoy, right? Yeah, I'm really done with it. This will be my second uh, year with the MLB Network. Um, last year, uh, I broke in with a few games here and there doing baseball tonight, but it's been a fun experience for me. I've really enjoyed it, and I've been prepared for it really my entire career because uh, doing a lot of things um, with different teams after the games, obviously being interviewed by uh, the media, doing stuff on Sunday night programs in the cities that we're in, I kind of prepared me for this. So. Yeah, so it seems like something you were prepared for. You always kept up on what's going on in baseball, so it was something that, you know, you, you didn't have to really do anything extra once you got there. Uh, what did you think was the biggest transition? Because, you know, in, in your own mind, you know, you, you were a player for a while, and you had, you know, you had, you had a little bit of time in retirement. Um, was, was there any major transition that you had to make once you were on the air and doing it, you know, in the level that you're doing it now? season. Uh, what, what do you think in your own mind for what you see on the field now, Daryl, is, is the biggest difference in the game now than it was when you played? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I think that the, um, maybe the, the attitude is a little bit different nowadays because, you know, I, I think playing every day is important today as it was years ago, but with all the money that's out there right now, you can't almost you can't give them a deal for a long period of time because I think that the biggest thing when I was coming up was that players didn't lose their position because they were hurt. You know, that was always the norm. Everyone says, oh, he's not going to lose his position because he got injured. That's not one of those things you can't um, prepare for and it's not fair for a player to lose their uh, position. Nowadays it's different. With the money, especially with the minimum wage, so to speak, for uh, the players coming up at half a million dollars, I don't, I don't think teams are worried about hurting anyone's feelings if, uh, if someone gets hurt and, and another guy steps in and does a great job. So just the whole attitude that you got to get out there and be out there every day uh, to prove your work is important. And the off 
Once again, John Kelly here with MLB Network Analyst, the former Major League outfielder, Daryl Hamilton. Now, you know, you notice like a lot of the, the weight training and stuff that exists now. Was it as prevalent when, when you played? I think it was, uh, but it wasn't to the degree it is now. I think, you know, it's easy for me to say this now because I'm retired. It's been out of the league for, for a while, but I mean, 162 games is a lot of games. And, uh, you know, I really didn't think about it when I was playing. I just did. But it is a tremendous toll on your body. And uh, I think the players nowadays understand that. And uh, I was in a couple of places the other day where I saw some players preparing for spring training. And they're just going words around like it's nobody's business. And I don't think we, uh, when I started my career back in 1988, I don't think we picked up weights like that and did all that stuff. They're, they're a little more advanced now. And you can see that the way the season goes on for these guys, they, they do a very good job of keeping themselves healthy. Yeah, now a follow-up question to that is the, the, way, the way training, uh, do you think it's a positive thing or maybe a negative thing? Maybe having that extra weight around, being a little maybe too strong. You see a lot of the injuries now nowadays with, uh, you know, muscles and becoming so tender and stuff like that. Do you think in a way that maybe it's a little bit of a negative that players have gone all out with this, uh, the, the weight regimen and the working out and, the you know, even the supplements that are involved with it? You know, I don't think it's a negative. I don't think it's a negative at all. I think uh, if you have someone who knows what they're doing and can prepare you for the upcoming season, I don't think it's a big deal. I don't recommend players just get in there and start throwing weights around. I mean, you're going to have somebody who understands the, the human body and understands what it's going to take to get you prepared for a regular season. And, you know, I've always been kind of hard on players who don't spend the money to prepare themselves to make their game better. And what I mean by that, I can remember when I was playing, you know, I was one of the first uh, guys to have a deal with you, basically take all my games and put them on um, on that DVD. And I watched them as I traveled with the team. And uh, now every team has that. But guys didn't want to spend money back then because it was fairly expensive. And my argument would be, well, you're making your job better a little bit easier. And you can spend that kind of money to make your job and make your, your profession a little bit easier than do it. And I say the same thing I say the same thing now with with training. You have somebody spend the money to get a guy in there to get you right and get you prepared because it will pay off on the field. Yeah, no question, and I tell you, it's an investment, what it really is, you know, you make an investment to your future, your career, what you invest in, in money for that now is going to pay you in the longevity of your career, so it makes perfect sense, and, and uh, you know, that, of course, you, you know, you, you, were, you were an outfielder for a long time, uh, you know, played your game more along the lines of, you know, ground balls, line drives, you weren't so much of a power hitter, did you feel that it was harder to break into the major leagues being that type of player, you know, you obviously played good defense. You had a lot of a lot of ability to certainly make it in the major leagues. Did you figure you, your job was a little bit harder because you didn't have that power element to your game? Well, you know, I didn't really didn't think about it. I mean, that, that's been my game my entire career. And there's no sense in me trying to change something because it did me well for a long period of time. So, you know, I understood what I could do and what I couldn't do. So there's no, and I, and I would say that to young players today, um, you know, know your limits. 
don't get out there and try to do something like it was born in hand. You know, you can enhance what you're trying to do and, and make yourself stronger. And I, I think you learn uh, power in the big leagues. You don't necessarily have to come in and show it right away. I mean, I played with some guys, and I look at one guy in particular, Robin Yao, who came in the league as a skate shortstop and left as a two-time MVP. And uh, he did not hit a lot of home runs his first couple of years in the big leagues. And he learned the power game and, and got stronger. And he was at a position where he could do that. And it, it enhanced him. So, I mean, you know, that's just what my game. And I, I hit, you know, most of the home runs I hit was high in the season. And, I mean, my biggest percentage was high. But I knew once my legs would go at the end of my career. And, unfortunately, that would happen in 2001. Now, once again, John Piala here with Daryl Hamilton. Now, you know, through your time with the Brewers, you ended up, uh, you know, missing some time. You ended up having a Tommy John surgery in 1994. Tell us a little bit about that experience, and what, was it, you know, was it kind of scary to you to have to go through such an operation at a young age? Well, I, uh, I didn't really think about it that much. I mean, it was something that happened in spring training that year, and I tried to, um, you know, work it out and, and not go the surgery route, but it didn't work out that way. So when they told me that I'm going to have to have surgery, you know, I just said, hey, so what's the protocol here? What, what's the rehab? What are we going to do afterwards? And basically they spelled out everything and, uh, you know, told me exactly what I was going to do and, and how it was going to go down. So uh, tough surgery. Thank goodness that the surgery happened at a time where uh, a lot of the doctors understood what to do and how to make it better. But, um, you know, I think, I think I was fortunate in that area. Uh, but let it happen in the mid-90s and not like in the mid-80s or 70s. Yeah, no question. And then, of course, you were able to recover from it. I'm sure after the operation, you probably felt as good as you had before then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Came back, uh, came back a lot faster than, than most guys. But, you know, I think the advantage was that I was, I was an outfielder. So I didn't have to throw a ball, you know, every Piala here with Daryl Hamilton. Now, you know, you end up going to the Rangers in 96. You get to play in the postseason that year. Same thing with the Giants when you end up there in 1997. And, and then, you know, you go through the Rockies and then you play for the Mets for a couple of years. Tell us a little bit about being part of the, the Mets teams in 1999 and 2000. You know, a team that, you know, struggled to get to the playoffs in 1999. Of course, having to win that one game playoff, but, you know, probably a, a, a pretty good team at that point. Tell us a little bit about your experience in New York? Yeah, I, I had a blast in New York. I mean, you know, the one thing a lot of people say is when you go to New York and play there, it's always a nightmare because the media is going to give you a lot of trouble with fans are going to be tough, and you probably had a win as far as the Mets side of things. But I was fortunate. Two and a half years I was there, the two years I was starting there, uh, we went to the playoffs. And uh, I, I could never say anything bad about New York. It was a great, great experience. The media was always good to me. I learned a lot from a lot of the guys who were putting a microphone in my face. And now it helps me out on this level. But uh, just an all-around great experience, the greatest city in the world, greatest fans. I mean, Shea Stadium, a lot of people talk mad about Shea Stadium, but there was no better ballpark in the playoffs than Shea Stadium. When you're at the outfield and they play in center field, and you look up in the stands and you see the entire stands behind the 
know, absolutely. And I tell you, you know, the experiences and, you know, 99, of course, getting to that, that uh, sixth game against the Braves and playing in the World Series in 2000. Tell us a little bit about your experience in the World Series, being part of the Mets team, playing the Yankees in 2000. Well, it was a fun experience. I mean, uh, the thing about uh, our team in 99 was better than the team in 2000. Uh, but we can have another discussion about that <laughs> down the road. But, um, you know, it, it, it's a shame that we lost our game one. Obviously, it was a big one. I mean, uh, we understood that all the pressure in the world was on the Yankees. They had to beat us. And we get out of here in the game one, and unfortunately, that ball Todd Zero hit at the top of the outfield uh, wall, didn't yeah. get over. And not a good play, a team who has taken his time getting around second and getting thrown at a home plate. So that was a big one, and, and they basically stole that game. And then the momentum kind of switched over, and, and they had it in their corner. So it happens, but um, all around a fun experience, first time, and the only time I got to the World Series, and I'll never forget it. Yeah, now 2001 comes, and the Mets, of course, have the high expectations getting to the World Series the year before. You know, things don't end up working out that season. What do you think was the biggest factor that had not that team not being as strong as it was the past two seasons? Well, we had expectations of being in the playoffs the last two years and having uh, going to the World Series the previous year. I mean, you expect a lot, and uh, uh, health-wise, we weren't the same team. I thought, um, as far as the players on the field, we didn't have what it would take to, to get to the next level. A year older, a couple years older, uh, there weren't any major moves that was going to change the outlook of our ball club. So, you know, you hate blaming people and saying they didn't do his job or this and that, but all in all, I mean, we just didn't have the uh, horses to, to run the race like we did the, the previous two years. Yeah, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, you know, before I let you go, Daryl, once again, I'm here with Daryl Hamilton for Major League Outfielder and uh, analyst for MLB Network. Um, coming into this season in uh, 2014, is there anything that sticks out in your mind as far as, like, you know, you, you get out, you get on the air and you want, you want to talk about in regards to the 2014 MLB season? Well, I think it's going to be an interesting season because the one thing that uh, – Let's see what the commissioner of baseball is trying to do is have parity in baseball. You know, let's not have only four or five teams talked about every year to uh, be the team that's going to end up in the World Series and win a championship. And I think he's done a great job with that. There are so many teams that are out there that could that get to the next level. And I'm a firm believer once you get to the playoffs, anything can happen. So I don't say there's one team in a particular that's going to run the table because as we've seen in the last few years, I mean, you can argue that Detroit was the best team in baseball last year, and they lose to Boston. So um, anything can happen. But I think yeah, I think some teams, I think the American West, West, is, West is going to be fun. Um, yeah, it is. You've got, you've got an Oakland team that's been very good year in, year out. They find a way to win. It doesn't matter who they throw out there. They find a way to win. You've got a very interesting Seattle American team who uh, was obviously could make a lot of noise out there. Uh, you also have the Texas Rangers, so I think it's been a couple of good things the offseason as well. Uh, and then, you know, by the way, the Anaheim uh, Angels, or the Los Angeles Angels, the Anaheim, excuse me, uh, a team that had high expectations the last two years, hadn't really come to the pass of them doing good things, but who knows, this could be the year for them to kind of turn things around. 
Yeah, no question. Listen, Dow, I want to thank you for having some time today. Keep up the good work on the MLB Network. And one thing I have to say, dude, you, you definitely come well prepared, and you know you do a phenomenal job in the network. Thank you. I appreciate it. Great spot there with Daryl Hamilton. Of course, don't forget to check him out on the MLB Network. He does a very good job. And like I said, he comes very prepared. Uh, He's definitely on this game as much as he was during his playing days. But we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to finish up the first hour past ball show right here on EMTR Radio Network. Back after this. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call, 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. This is empty vlog. Go ahead, laugh, laugh all you want, but the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay. This empty vlog. This is empty vlog. This is empty vlog. This is empty vlog. Base is empty block. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, getting into the Bases Empty Block portion of this program. Great second hour planned. We're going to continue with the Passball Show on the Road series in Pennsylvania. A couple interviews I recorded with former Mets outfielder Dave Schneck and former Red Sox pitcher Bob Hefner. And the Bob Hefner interview is going to lead to a post that I'm going to put up within the next couple days or so. Very interesting stuff in regards to one of the greats to ever play for the Boston Red Sox. But before we get into that, before we you know finish off this hour and get into the next hour, I want to give you a little recap over Bases Empty Block from last week. Of course, check that out, johnpielli.com. And of course, some of the articles up here on mtrmedia.com slash johnpielli. And I kind of got into the whole trade that involved Steve Carlton because it was February 25th, 1972, that the Cardinals and Phillies decided to put this uh, player-for-player trade straight-up deal. Steve Carlton, the lefty, pitching for the Cardinals, coming off of a 20-win season to the Philadelphia Phillies for a proven right-hand pitcher by the name of Rick Wise. And Rick Wise will forever be known for throwing a no-hitter and hitting two home runs in the same game. And you look at, obviously, what happened to the players afterwards. Steve Carlton becomes a phenomenal pitcher, one of the best left-hand pitchers to ever pitch in the major leagues. And Rick Wise, who has some very good seasons, makes the all-star team again 
is nowhere near in the same category as Steve Carlton. So you look back in hindsight and you say, that trade was pretty silly. How could the Cardinals let a guy like Steve Carlton go? And you know about the history of the St. Louis Cardinals organization. They're always known for making very shrewd moves, very good moves in regards to their young players. They hold on to their young players. That helped them out very much in the 1940s when they were winning World Series championships. Later on in the 60s, and this deal takes place after the Cardinals' last World Series championship in 1967. Uh, the Cardinals obviously in pennant races for a couple of years, and Steve Carlton's an up-and-coming left-hand pitcher. And what ends up happening, and this is based on feedback that I got, because the question that I posed, what could have possessed the Cardinals to trade Steve Carlton? And it's not that they traded him for Rick Wise, because I'll show you the numbers in a minute. They really weren't that far off from each other at the time. But why would the Cardinals want to trade a guy like Steve Carlton? I mean, look at some of the pitchers that they've had, you know, the Bob Gibsons of the world. Carlton obviously had that ability to be that next generation of great pitchers. And obviously, based on his career in Philadelphia, he ended up doing that and doing it very well, leading to the Phillies to a World Series championship in 1980, the pennant in 1983, and winning the 329 games that he ended up winning. So uh, I, I ended up doing a little research and thanks for a little bit of feedback that I got in regards to this article, was Carlton's relationship with the St. Louis Cardinals organization. And apparently there was a little bit of a rift between management, whether it's the front office, whether it was the manager, the coaching staff, and with Steve Carlton. And that led the Cardinals to make this trade where they end up trading him straight up for Rick Wise. And you know, at the time of the deal, Wise was 25 years old. He had compiled a 75 and 76 record, 360 ERA with 52 complete games, 13 shutouts, 717 Ks, and 1,244 and two thirds innings for the Phillies. Carlton for St. Louis uh, was 26 at the time, had a career record of 77 and 62, 310 ERA, 66 complete games, 16 shutouts, with 951 Ks and 1,265 innings. Looking at the deal as it was made at the time, I still don't see the positives with the Cardinals moving forward with this deal, even based on the players where they were now. Obviously, forget about hindsight because you make a trade, you can't talk about what happens 20 years later, 40 years later. It doesn't make any sense to do it that way. So at the time, I'm still questioning why Steve Carlton was considered from the Cardinals' perspective to be worth Rick Wise in return. Now, is it as drastic as it ends up becoming with Carlton making a Hall of Fame? No. But at the time, I do think Steve Carlton to the Phillies for Rick Wise plus to make this deal work out. Not a ton more, maybe another player. Another player involved in a deal makes the deal seem to make a little more sense. But listen, I'm not, this isn't all about dissing Rick Wise because I think he was a very good pitcher in his own right. And obviously, his success he had with the Phillies before that, after the, you know he was acquired by the Cardinals, he had some success afterwards. So he was an all-star in 1971. He pitched to a 280 ADRA with the Phillies team that lost 95 games under Frank Lucchese, who was the manager. Uh, when we're talking about the worst trades made in the history of the game, this doesn't make the top 100 or 200. But Carlton seemed to be coming into his own. You know, the crystal ball wouldn't see uh, Carlton winning 27 games for the last place Phillies in, their, in his 1972 season. But Wise did pitch well enough in his two seasons with the Cardinals. He won 16 games each season, made his second All-Star appearance in 1973. He was dealt to Boston, and despite being hurt in 1974, he won 19 games in 1975 and pitched uh, you know, in the LCS in the World Series that season. The problem I have is the fact that this deal just didn't make sense to do 
even knowing what we know now. Carlton, the owner of 329 career wins, Rick Wise was 188 and 181. He was not in the major leagues after a brief appearance in the 1982 season. You know about Carlton pitching well into the 80s, even past his prime. The only thing could have been, you know, if there was a rift with the management. And I really think there was between the St. Louis Cardinals and Steve Carlton. And maybe they decided that they really did have to make a move there and kind of move on from Steve Carlton. Rick Wise was probably a good guy to get back. May not have been enough. You know, the salaries were pretty similar, of course. Carlton didn't get a raise, really, a substantial raise until after he won 27 games for the Phillies in 1972. But obviously he was the best pitcher in the game, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal season, and he deserved it. But, you know, something certainly to look into. And, you know, what I'm going to do is transition right now, kind of go from a little historic to conventional. And we're going to talk a little bit about the closers in MLB baseball. And one thing that's very interesting about this is, you know, MLB Network likes to do the best relievers. And I think that's that is probably a more accurate assessment of who the best relievers are in the game because sometimes the best relievers, even on a particular team, are setup men as opposed to being closers. But I'm going to take that fact and kind of put it aside and say, all right, well, let's just look at who is the 30 closers in all of Major League Baseball for each team. And I want to rank them because obviously you look at Mariano Rivera not being around anymore. You look at some of the other pitchers, some of the other top relievers have kind of taken a step back over the last couple seasons. You know about the new guard. You know about some of the very good and top closers in the game. And they weren't who you thought they were maybe about two, three years ago. And you got a whole different group of younger pitchers that have taken that closer role and kind of run with it. And they're, you know, you wonder how they rank against the guys that are more proven. And here's what I got. We're going to start for Team number 30, it's the Houston Astros. We're going to go with their closer, and I'm going to say it's going to be Josh Fields. Josh Fields is a guy who's a pretty highly touted prospect, a guy that is expected to be a good late-game reliever. Uh, Based on his numbers last year, it was not so good. 497 ERA, five saves, 40 Ks, and 38 innings. But uh, guys like Jesse Crane, Chad Qualls are going to be there. They're going to compete for the closer job. The Houston Astros got the 30th best closer in Major League Baseball, and obviously it can only get better from here. You start with the Chicago White Sox at number 29. Nate Jones, he's going to be a first-time pitch in the ninth inning. Addison Reed got traded to the Arizona Diamondbacks. I think he's overrated in his own right. We're going to be mentioning him pretty soon, but Nate Jones is a guy that got beat up a little bit at times, has a very good fastball, 415 ERA, doesn't have a Major League save, 89 Ks and 78 innings in 2013. Tommy Hunter, Another guy is going to be pitching in the ninth inning for the first time in his career. Jim Johnson was kind of in the same position that Hunter is now a couple years ago. Johnson went out there, had 51 saves in 2012, 50 saves in 2013. Tommy Hunter is going to get a chance. Uh, Listen, 281 ERA, four saves, 68 Ks and 83 in the third innings for the Orioles in 2013. 27, Jose Veras. And Veras, in my opinion, is not a closer. He did get 21 saves for the Astros last season, but it was kind of a last resort type of thing. They gave him the job. There's really nobody else to step up there and get it. I think Veras is a very good 7th or 8th inning pitcher, but I don't think he's going to do very well as a closer. He may be back in that role after very long. 302 ERA, 21 saves, 
60 Ks, 62 and two thirds innings for the Astros and Tigers in 2013. Latroy Hawkins came off a very good season for the Mets last year. Uh, Bobby Parnell got hurt. He stepped in as a closer. He ended up getting himself a, a job as a closer with the Rockies this season. He's going to be an upgrade, in my opinion, over Rafael Betancourt, who struggled over the last couple of years before retiring. 293 ERA, 13 saves, 55 Ks in 70 and two thirds innings in 2013. John Axford's going to get another chance with the Cleveland Indians. Axford, in my opinion, was impressive in the second half of last year, particularly with the St. Louis Cardinals, and pitched very well in the postseason. So I do give him credit for that. A very good job. It looks like he's looking to reestablish himself as a closer, and he's going to be the closer for the Cleveland Indians this year. Um, 402 ERA, no saves, 65 Ks and 70 and two-thirds innings in 2013. The exact same amount of innings pitched as LaTroy Hawkins, by the way, so I didn't get that confused. That was the real numbers, but I think John Axford could be an upgrade over Chris Perez. I think getting the ninth inning again in a kind of a place like Cleveland that you know may not have necessarily big media attention. He could go under the radar. I think he'll be all right, but I do think he has his work cut out for him. Addison Reed at number 24 with the Arizona Diamondbacks. I really think Reed was the most overrated closer in all of Major's last season. And the Diamondbacks have a good quantity of solid arms in their pen. Guys like Brad Ziegler and David Hernandez. Reed may not have the job for that long. Big time strike. Not a big strike a pitcher either. 379 ERA, 40 saves, 71 Ks, 71 in the third innings in 2013. Jimmy Henderson, who ended up inheriting the job in Milwaukee as the closer from John Axford. He came out of nowhere. Uh, spite of some quality numbers, he's also going to have to watch his back this year. I do think that they're gonna, the Brewers will have a short leash with him. His numbers real quick. A 270 ERA, 28 saves, 75 Ks in 60 innings in 2013. Houston Street, I got him at number 22. I think this is a guy that has had a lot of success for a while. He was very good in Colorado and Oakland. Uh, he was good last year. I think he could get the job done, but he's not the pitcher he was five years ago. He's going to have to get off to a very good start to keep his job this season. 270 ERA, 33 saves. 46 Ks and 56 and two-thirds innings in 2013. Fernando Rodney of the Seattle Mariners, I got at number 21. This is interesting because Rodney only a couple of years ago had really one of the greatest seasons a closer has ever had. It's him and Dennis Eckersley in 1990 with the .6 ERA, the whole thing. Uh, I, I thought he was good last year. He wasn't as bad as I think people made it out to be when it made the stark contrast from the great season he had in 12 and the season he had in 2013. He is a major league closer. I really do think he's going to get do a good job for the Seattle Mariners. But to expect him to be a top closer in all of Major League Baseball, I think is pushing it a little bit. Um, you know, you obviously had some struggles with the Angels after he signed that deal when he was, was with the Detroit Tigers. Uh, 3.38 ERA, 37 saves, 82 Ks, 66 and two thirds innings in 2013. The K percentage is something that I, I'm really going to rank a lot in this, and I, I do think it's important to have closers that are able to get those strikeouts. Strikeouts per innings pitched is very important when we're talking about the best closers in Major League Baseball, in my opinion. Team number 20 or player number 20 is Jim Johnson. Jim Johnson's the guy who's had the most saves in Major League Baseball over the last two seasons. 51 saves in 2012, 50 saves in 2013. Why is he the number 20th closer in all of Major League Baseball? I think he's the most overrated closer in all of Major League Baseball because of that save stat. If you look at his numbers, he is not that lights-out guy. He doesn't make you think of Mariano Rivera or anybody like that. And I don't think anybody's going to make you think of Rivera, but when you're thinking of top closers, 
closers, you want a guy that's going to strike some fear in your eyes. And this is why the Orioles felt that Johnson was expendable, traded him to the Oakland Athletics. It's a whole nother story. But um, I expect him to pitch all right, but I just don't trust him in a big spot. 290 ERA, 50 saves, 56 Ks, and 70 in the third innings. I told you about the K percentage. I weigh very heavily in this in 2013. Casey Jansen, I got a number 19 with the Toronto Blue Jays. I considered moving Jansen up the list a bit, but I think he fits well right here. He's still ranked ahead of some proven closers, did an adequate job for the Jays last season. The key is going to be getting him the ball as the Jays' starting rotation as a whole was one of the worst in all of Major League Baseball last season. I thought the bullpen pitched well, particularly Jansen. 256 ERA, 34 saves, 50 Ks and 52 and two-thirds innings in 2013. Number 18, I got Sergio Romo of the Giants. Romo took over for the beard, Brian Wilson, after he got hurt, helped the Giants win the World Series in 2012. Though he's a solid reliever, he doesn't scare me anymore. And I think he came up, he was much better when he first started closing games or even when he was setting up Wilson. But I think he's lost something. He's not quite as dominant, though his numbers show that he's pretty good. 254 ERA, 38 saves, 58 Ks, and 60 in a third innings in 2013. I moved myself into Jonathan Papelbon. And if we were doing this ranking a couple years ago, Papelbon would certainly be a top 10 reliever. He's had a great career. Even based on his 2013 numbers, he has plenty left to offer. While many would consider him a top 10 closer right now, he has lost some off his fastball. His strikeout per innings pitched numbers are down. Um, certainly down since when he pitched with Boston. 292 ERA, 29 saves, 57 Ks, and 61 innings in 2013. Moving on, Glenn Perkins. And we're going to start to go with the pitchers that are kind of moving up a little bit. Glenn Perkins is a guy that's certainly under the radar, doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, you know, with uh, he's, he's performed better than you think. The fact that the Twins have not been a contender makes it hard for him to notice him. I would rather have him or some other guys, some of the younger guys, than some of the prover and relievers that I mentioned, you know, a, you know, a couple minutes ago. 230 ERA, 36 saves, 77 K is 62 and two thirds innings in 2013, and he's a lefty. Steve Sychek at the Miami Marlins is number 15. He was certainly one of the quiet young relievers in the game. I use the safe stat to say that some are overrated, but Sychek checks out okay. Low ERA, high K percentage, 233 ERA, 34 saves, 74 Ks in 69 and two-thirds innings in 2013. Number 14, I got Bobby Parnell. Bobby Parnell of the Mets, of course, you know, was coming off the back injury last year, the surgery. You hope that he could back up what he did last year and have a good 2014. I think he could do it. 216 ERA last year, 22 saves, 44 Ks in 50 innings in 2013. Two things I have to worry about, or you have to worry about with Parnell. Number one, is he come back from the injury? Number two, does he get his Ks per nine innings pitch up a little bit more? That knuckle curve that Jason Isringhausen taught him certainly has given him the opportunity to be a closer. I think he has a chance to be a good one. Number 14 is where I got Bobby Parnell. 13, Ernesto Frieri. Here's another guy that quietly has gone under the radar. If you look at his ERA last year, 380, you say, hey, how could this guy be ranked number 13 in all Major League Baseball amongst closers? And 
He had 37 saves, but 98 Ks in 68 and two-thirds innings. He's always been a strikeout pitcher. Uh, his ERA would be lower if it wasn't for a couple outings where he got absolutely blown up. He had a stretch where I think he had like three or four games in a row where he ended up giving up like something like 11 earned runs and like three-plus innings or something like that. Obviously did wonders to hurt his ERA, but I, I got him at number 13. Moving on to 12. Rafael Soriano of the Washington Nationals. He left the Yankees, of course, to be a national closer. Let's be honest, his 2012 season fill-in for Mariano Rivera was outstanding. I thought he was good last year. 311 ERA, 43 saves, 51 Ks in 66 and two-thirds innings. But I, I do see a guy that's kind of falling down the chart a little bit, and that gets me to number 11, and that's David Robertson in the New York Yankees. Here's a guy that had just three saves last year. Of course, when Mariano was hurt the year before, they did not give him the, they gave him the ball first. He didn't get the job done, so they went to Soriano. The question's going to be, can Robertson be a closer? Can he be a ninth-inning type of guy? And I think it's something very interesting to see if this ends up turning out because I think it's going to be the turning point over whether Robertson the closer is the closer of the Yankees after too long. But, you know, you look at him last year, 204 ERA, three saves, 77 Ks, 66 and two-thirds innings in 2013. I think he has the ability to go out there and and dominate and get himself to a point where he could be a ninth-inning guy and the Yankees will have no problem after this season knowing who their closer is after Mariano Rivera retires. Obviously, being Rivera's apparent heir is something that's going to be such a tough thing to end up going through. And I, I think it's something that, you know, David Robertson's going to have to kind of suck it up, dig deep into his heart of hearts, and see if he can be the closer for the Yankees in the future. But second hour, I'm going to get in the 1 through 10, but I'm glad I got 30 to 11. And obviously, feel free to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. Um, we're going to touch on a couple little things going on in Major League Baseball right now as we get to the top of the hour, ready for hour number two right here on the Passball Show, brought to you, of course, by JohnPielli.com. I want to get into an issue, something that's really been bothering me, and I, I didn't even want to bring this up, but it's gotten to a point where it's really gotten on my nerves, and I have to say something about it. This whole face of Major League Baseball thing, the face of MLB thing where we, oh, you see tweets and tweets, hey, get my guy, my guy, my guy. God, I'm so tired of hearing about this face of MLB. I can't wait until it's over. I'm glad it's finally done. I'm not even going to announce who won because I really don't care. But the problem is, is it's a popularity contest based on fans of certain regions. And I know it was kind of designed to be that way. I agree with the, the whole premise and it is what it is. But, you know, you got Eric Sogard representing the Oakland Athletics. Is he to face a Major League Baseball? In nobody else's mind but the people that are in Oakland that are trying to make a campaign for him. David Wright with the Mets. We know the Mets fans love David Wright. You know, the same thing you could say about Felix Hernandez with Seattle, Clayton Kershaw with Los Angeles. Uh, I mean, who, whoever your face of your franchise is that's up of here to be the face of MLB, you know the fans in your own region, the fans that root for that team are going to love him and think he's the greatest thing in the world. But what are you trying to do here? Yeah, I, I think you're trying to, over time, rank what you think is the best player, maybe not just in all Major League Baseball, but the most popular player in all Major League Baseball. But, you know, if, if there's guys, let's say, like, uh, you know, Mike Trout or Bryce Harper, uh, Miguel 
Miguel Cabrera, Chris Davis, guys like that who have the popularity, I would like it to go to one of those guys as opposed to every region just simply voting for their team's respective player. And I think it's a little silly. Uh, I really didn't even want to bring this whole thing up. And I got to be honest, I had to get it off my chest. Face of MLB, I hope this is the only year that we do it. I hope we never see it again. I'm just, I can't wait until it's all gone. And I, I don't even care. I don't want to acknowledge who won because it doesn't mean anything. Uh, we're not talking, we're not ranking the top players in all of Major League Baseball. We're talking about the most popular players. We're not talking about uh, the region that gets their fans to vote uh, 100 times each person for 100,000 fans. It's not supposed to be that way. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Big thanks to Daryl Hamilton for being a guest on this hour. Dave Schneck and Butch Hefner coming up in hour number two. <laughs> 